American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. Throw it all away. Welcome to another episode of American Timelines. I'm Amy. <laughs> yeah, you are Amy. And I'm Joe, and we're back together. I'm Grover Cleveland Steamer. That's right. Yeah. And I'm Franklin Pierce his nipples. Franklin Pierce his nipples. Yes. And we are back with another episode of American Timelines. Yep. By History for Jerks. All right. Amy's back because she was fired from her job, so she has nothing else to do. Oh, no. I wish. Don't you wish you were fired? I could get unemployment. What a state of affairs that we, that teachers of America, wish they would be fired. So they could get, we could get There's a lot of people leaving. They had a lot of teachers are leaving. Yeah, I know. Our daughter's gym teacher just walked out, like just told the kids, hey. No, that was, uh, at the elementary school, oh, the music the elementary teacher. school music teacher. Sorry, Jim. Boy, teacher. you're yeah, you're really bad at telephone. The game of telephone, aren't you? I'm way off. It's not even. And my it wasn't even teacher. your daughter either. Yeah, it's my friend's daughter's <laughs> music teacher. Yeah. Just stormed in and said, "Hey, I'm fed up. I've had enough. I'm tired of being talked to any old kind of way by you kids. I'm tired of the way the administration treats me. I'm out of here." Yeah, that's pretty bad. And those kids will remember that for the rest of their lives. <laughs> you know, right? Remember when our music teacher had enough? There's probably one little kid in there that was like, my dream, my whole life was to be a music teacher, but it was crushed <laughs> that day when the music teacher came in and fuck this and fuck all oh, yeah. you. Fuck you. Fuck you. Yep. Fuck you. You're cool. All right. Yeah. So we're in a stand state affairs, but we're going to jump into, we're going to escape all this. Yes. All this nastiness of COVID and this racist world. We're in, and we're going to go back to a simpler time. A, a free time, May a of 1954, of... when there was no hatred. Yeah, there right. There was no racism. There was no awfulness. Yeah. Okay. Just kidding. It was just, it was much it was more worse. It was much more overt. But yeah. now it's getting overt again. Well, now we have cameras everywhere. <laughs> then they didn't. Right. <clears throat> so it stayed behind closed doors. Actually, it didn't go behind closed doors yet at yeah. this time. It was welcome. People and open. were like, yeah, they could say, Whatever awful. they wanted people to. Were, yeah. People were. Yeah. But it's so. important that we talk about it. But I don't think we're going to talk much about. Yeah. Racism. We're going to talk about just goofy stuff. That's why we try to focus on the cool stuff like birthdays, like May 1st. Oh. We got our first birthday in 1954. Hit it, Matt Truman. Ego trip. Greatest band of all time. Detroit, Michigan, Ray Erskine blank. I'm not going to tell you his last name. Ray. His name is Ray. His middle name is Erskine. Erskine. Okay. And he's born in Detroit, Michigan to Vanolia and Ray Sr. He has two siblings. Siblings. Two siblings. Two siblings. His brother, Opelton, and his sister, Barbara. He attended Angel Elementary School, where his music teacher 
Alfred T. Kirby inspired him to be a musician at age six playing the clarinet. See, this guy was Ray inspired. Stevens. No, this is Ray Parker Jr. Oh, I thought Ray Stevens. And, and there could have been another Ray Parker Jr. in that in that teacher's class who who ruined dashed their dreams. Dashed their dreams. Yeah. Um, Ray Parker Jr. was born. He attended Cass Technical High School in the 10th grade. He's a 1971 graduate of Detroit's Northwestern High School, red and gray, home of the Colts. Notable alumni include John Conyers, United States Congressman, Melvin Franklin, the bass singer for the Temptations, and Casey Keenum. All went to the same school. Now that's something you know. But I've always thought, are you aware of Ray Parker Jr.'s career? Um, Did he sing the Ghostbusters theme song? Yeah. That's about all I know. That's all I thought he did. I thought he was a one-hit wonder that did nothing but that. You underestimated him. I underestimated Ray Parker Jr., and I bet some of you did too. And shame on you, listeners, who, who, along with me, underestimated him. And huzzah for those of you listeners who are aware of his career. Uh, he gained recognition during the late 1960s as a member of Bohannon's house band at the 20 Grand Nightclub. And I looked some of that up online. It's some really funky stuff. Mm-hmm. This Detroit hotspot often featured... Motown acts, one of which the Detroit Spinners was so impressed by Ray Parker Jr.'s guitarist skills, they added him to their touring group. And through that relationship, he recorded and co-wrote his first songs at age 16 with Marvin Gaye. Mm -hmm. And Parker was also employed as a studio musician as a teenager for the emergent Holland Dozier Holland's Invictus Hot Wax Stable. And his choppy style was especially prominent on Want Ads, a number one single for for Honeycomb. When we talk about Honeycomb, no. A while back, you don't remember that? Anyway. Nope. Uh, anyway, 1972, Ray Parker Jr. was a guest guitarist on Stevie Wonder's funk song, Maybe Your Baby, Okay. from Wonder's album Talking Book. Anyway, and then he was also lead guitarist for Stevie Wonder when he opened for the Rolling Stones in 1972. Uh, he became a sideman of Barry White's Love Unlimited Orchestra. Parker- God, that, that's crazy to think Stevie Wonder opened for the Rolling Stones. Isn't that nuts? Yes. And then Ray Parker Jr., was briefly in Uptown Saturday Night as a guitar player, but he also did session work for the Carpenters, Bill Cosby, Rufus and Shaka Khan, the Supremes, Aretha Franklin, Denise Williams, Bill Weathers, Michael Hendricks. Anyway, he had this whole big Gladys Knight, the Pips, Boz Skaggs, Herbie Hancock. We get it. Anyway, we get it. So, but he also had a band in 1977, uh, an R&B group called Radio, R-A-Y-D-I-O, Ray and Ray Parker. Yes. And they had a song, Jack and Jill. Have you ever heard of that song? Nope. If you listen to it, look it up on YouTube. You've heard it. And it's really funky. And it's cool. It's totally 70s and ridiculous looking, but it's great. So he was, and people, old people know this, old people that love old R&B and Motown and stuff. And we are stupid for not knowing it. But now, you know, look up Ray Parker Jr.'s career on YouTube and enjoy. Okay. Enjoy yourself this weekend. All right. And then on May 6th, 1954, Ray Parker Jr. is comfortably in the world. He's five days old. And I don't know if you know this, but before 1954, it was popular opinion that the human body was incapable of running a mile in under four minutes. Mm. But Roger Bannister proved that wrong on this. Boom. 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 He was the first human to run a mile in less than four minutes. He ran it in three minutes and 59 seconds. He was running. He was running. Uh, the historic event took place during a meet between British AAA and Oxford University at Ifley Road track in Oxford. <laughs> watched by about 3,000 spectators. So he's a British guy. Yes. Okay. Yep. Winds were up to 25 miles per hour before the event. 
And Bannister said twice. Whoa. Maybe he was times. running with the wind and it no, pushed no, he, him along a no, little bit. Before the race, he said this. He oh. preferred not to run and because it was too windy. Windy and awful. He'll try again another time. But right before the race was scheduled to begin, the winds dropped. Oh. And he ran. Then after he was done running, he became a neurologist and he was knighted for his neurologist work in 1975. Okie dokie. And then we got another birthday on May Come 8th, on. 1954. David Keith, the actor, was born in Knoxville, Tennessee. I only did him because I thought it was Keith David, who's a cooler actor. Uh, but David Keith and Keith David should be in a movie together called David Keith. All right, David's. we're moving on. Okay, he's born in Knoxville, Tennessee, and his cousin is Mike Keith and play by play announcer for the Tennessee Titans. And then on May 16, 1954, Ted Williams got his got eight hits in one game. Uh, he was a DH. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first time he did that since breaking his collarbone. And then May 17th, we got some serious business to get to. Oh. Which you probably know a lot more about this than me, but um, but before we get to May 17th, 1954, we got to backtrack a little bit. Okay. We have to go back to 1896 mm-hmm. when the Supreme Court ruled in Plessy versus Ferguson yes. that racially segregated public facilities were legal. That's right. So long as the facilities for black people and white people were equal. Mm-hmm. That's a big joke because they never were equal. Right. Uh, they never were. Um so the ruling constitutionally sanctioned laws barring African-Americans from sharing the same buses, schools, and other public facilities as white people known as Jim Crow laws. Mm-hmm. And it established the separate but equal doctrine that would stand for the next six decades. That's right. Fast forward to the early 1950s. Yeah. And the <clears throat> National Association for the Advancement of Colored People mm-hmm. was working hard to challenge segregation laws in public schools. And they had filed lawsuits on behalf of plaintiffs in states such as South Carolina, Virginia, and Delaware. And in the case that would become most famous, a plaintiff named <laughs> Oliver Brown mm-hmm. filed a class action suit against the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas mm-hmm. in 1951, after his daughter, Linda Brown, was denied entrance to Topeka's all-white elementary schools. So everybody, you always hear about Brown versus Board of Education. Right. So this. Yeah. Is it? It's Oliver Brown, mm-hmm. his daughter Linda Brown, in Topeka. In his lawsuit, Brown claimed that schools for black children were not equal to white schools mm-hmm. as it's supposed to be. That's the whole thing, right. and that segregation violated the so-called Equal Protection Clause uh, of the Fourteenth Amendment, which holds that no state can deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Mm-hmm. Equal, equal. Right. It's supposed to be equal, not bullshit. Equal. The case went before the U.S. District Court in Kansas, which agreed that public school segregation had a detrimental effect upon the colored children and contributed to a sense of inferiority, but yes. still continued to upheld the separate but equal doctrine, even though they said that. Yeah. When Brown's case and four other cases related to school segregation first came before the Supreme Court in 1952, the court combined them into a single case under the name Brown v. Board of Education of Tobacco. So there's other cases, too. They just put them in one thing. Like, this is a thing we got to deal with. Mm-hmm. Sounds like people were aware of this. Right. You know, it's not like people didn't know. It was they just they knew it was a problem, just like back in with slavery. Like, they knew this is wrong and this is going to 
mm-hmm. get ugly. We got to do something, but they didn't and didn't and didn't. So same thing. Thurgood Marshall, the head of the NAACP legal defense and educational fund served as chief attorney for the plaintiffs. 13 years later, president Lyndon B. Johnson would appoint Marshall as the first black Supreme court justice, but now he's here. At first, the justices were divided on how to rule on school segregation, with Chief Justice Fred M. Vinson holding the opinion that Plessy verdict that the Plessy verdict should stand. But in September of 1953, before Brown v. Board of Education was to be heard, Vinson died, and President Dwight D. Eisenhower replaced him with Earl Warren, who was then the governor of California. Mm-hmm. This is the crazy bit to me. It's like this is why the Supreme Court. Oh my God. Nominations matter. matter and change yeah. the world. They change yep. history. They do. Based on who you put in, who dies when, yep. and who takes over, and what comes up. It's so crazy mm-hmm. that it's all just based on a whim of who, who, who dies and who gets appointed. So, displaying considerable political skill and determination, the new chief justice succeeded in engineering a unanimous verdict against school segregation the following year. In the decision issued on this day, May 17th, 1954, Warren wrote that, quote, in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place, Mm -hmm. unquote, as segregated schools are, quote, inherently unequal, unquote. As a result, the court ruled that the plaintiffs were being deprived of the equal protection of the laws guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. I got all that from history.com, and that's just a, Mm a concise explanation, dumbing it down for people who don't know all the history of the racism. Like, right. There's people going through life that just think there's not racism and it's not a historically racist country. Well, and a lot of those people are trying to destroy Brown v. Board by by uh, destroying public schools. Well, those aren't the people. The people that are trying to do horrible things, I'm not trying to talk to. I'm trying to talk to the people who don't know and and believe these other people, you know, the believe the evildoers and the people spreading lies and bullshit like i'm just mm-hmm. i just want to dumb it down for those of us who aren't i'm a dumb guy you got to dumb everything down for me and then yeah. i'll be on your side explain to me what happened and i will help you fight off i'd hate awfulness but i don't know a lot of it i'm dumb so i just want to make it <laughs> real simple and easy for people who are just going through life like oh gosh i guess there was this is all built on awfulness yep and a lie mm-hmm. And white people have had privilege for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. May 21st, uh, the U.S. 26th Amendment. Oh, wait. I'm May 21st. Oh, yeah, I'm already in May 21st. And we're going to get to your grisly, awful murder and rape. Oh. May 21st, 1954. Um, the U.S. 26th Amendment to give 18-year-olds the right to vote is defeated. Oh. So... I didn't know 18 year olds couldn't vote until like the seventies. Did you know? Oh, I didn't know that. No, I thought they always could vote. I remember, I remember when I was like 15. So they could go to war, but they couldn't vote. I guess. Yeah. I don't know when they go to war. That's insane. Well, that's it. And that's what I remember thinking was so crazy that, oh, I can vote, but I can't drink. Right. But you couldn't vote or drink. And then they moved voting up to 18 and then drinking, but drinking was 18, I think. And then it moved to, and maybe it was different every state, but I remember my parents telling me I was like 12 or 13. And they said, no, when we, we drank when we were 18. Yeah. And, and, and New six, Orleans, it's still like, well, some places when you're 16, you could drink like a third beer or whatever those were called. Oh, right. 30, I don't know. I could be wrong. I think that's what it was. Anyway, 
I don't. I was floored by this. I had no yeah. idea that eighteen-year-olds couldn't vote till the seventies. The Twenty-Sixth Amendment to the U.S. prohibits the state and federal government from using age as a reason for denying the right to vote to citizens of the United States who are at least eighteen years old. It was proposed by Congress on March twenty-third, nineteen seventy-one, and three-fourths of the states ratified it by July first, nineteen seventy-one. I meant to look up mm-hmm. why. Like, why did they deny this? Like, they tried nineteen fifty-four to pass it. Yeah. And most people said, no, right. No, don't give them the right to vote. I think I wonder what the politics surrounding I that decision just, was. Yeah. I mean, you're probably worried. It's probably people knowing that if the young people get in, they're going to vote for a different party. The liberal, probably. Maybe. Because young people always skew liberal. Could be. Did they always, though? Maybe. Probably. I think youth. Yeah. The rock and roll. They more idealistic. And so maybe that was why. Or maybe they people just get thought, more conservative as they age. Too, is what they say that's true well maybe they just thought people also maybe people just thought well 18 year olds aren't smart enough or they're not mm-hmm. informed enough or something i don't know i don't know what yeah. the argument was i totally meant to look that up a little bit but i didn't i got busy and then on may 22nd 1954 mm-hmm. robert zimmerman was bar mitzvahed a guy in Min- minnesota what? in hibbing minnesota a guy was bar mitzvahed and why are we talking about it? Uh, because that guy happened to be Bob Dylan. Oh, Robert Zimmerman. Yep. Yeah, right. Robert Zimmerman. And uh, and it's really exciting. We know that date because according to BobDylan.org.uk, uh, the article called Bob Dylan, the Lost Bar Mitzvah Tapes by Gabriel Emanuel, goes into the fact that they found these tapes. They have audio recordings of his bar mitzvah. Oh. And they... Uh, Pastor Wendell Helgeson of the Wesley United Methodist Church in Hibbing, Minnesota, discovered this rare artifact in the basement of the church on Easter Sunday. It was an audio tape recording from the days before the church moved in and took over the mortgage from the former owners, the Agudath Achim Synagogue, which closed its doors in 1964 due to a dwindling local Jewish population. When Pastor Helgeson dusted off and activated the old Sony reel or reel, he was intrigued at first by the melodic chanting, which he assumed to be the young men's Hebrew choir. It turned out to be the synagogue cantor's own recordings of each boy's bar mitzvah rehearsal. He was about to turn off the tape when he heard a distinct voice that he immediately recognized. I would know that nasal sound anywhere. Yeah. Pastor Wendell said, bursting with hometown pride, no mistaking that voice belonged to the prodigal son of Hibbing. Bob Dylan. He heard Bob. He recognized Bob Dylan's voice. Yeah. On a recording of uh, Bar Mitzvah. Of course, it's not like you just be holy shit. That sounds like Bob Dylan. I mean, it's in the hometown. Everybody knows he's from there when they found it. Right. Um. But yeah, so they found this old tape, and uh, and I have to read this quote um, from. <laughs> somebody it was, they were they were really trying to authenticate the tape i guess for mm-hmm. a while and they were trying to find somebody that was around then but most of the jewish community of hibbing had migrated to the twin cities and beyond uh, but the pastor found one old-time resident isidore goldfine of goldfine and sons fine furniture on main street he swore by the tape and he said quote that's him all right says the 77 year old goldfine after the pastor <laughs> pastor played a sample from the tape the warbling shrill uh, resembling more the high notes of the famous singer's harmonica than his great gravelly voice today. I was at Bobby's bar mitzvah, and let me tell you, he was no Pavarotti and no Sinatra either, recounts Goldfine, who still bides his days 
puttering around the furniture shop now run by his son, Stan. He was just like the rest of us Jewish kids who took lessons after school from an old itinerant rabbi with a white beard and black hat who lived above the jukebox joint. Dave and Betty, Bobby's parents, had promised Bobby a transistor radio and a guitar for his bar mitzvah. I guess they had some kind of an idea where he was headed, though Bobby never kept in touch with anyone after he left, at least not as far as I know. They say he's been back once or twice, but never let anyone know. Okay. There you go. Bob Dylan's bar mitzvah tapes. All right. Let me know uh, who gets the movie rights for that story. <laughs> hey, hey, I would watch that movie about finding bar- Bob Dylan's bar mitzvah uh-huh. tapes. Yeah. You don't think that was th- I was just picturing that old man saying that old man is all grizzled. Oh, riv- riveting. All, all right. right. You know what? What? American Timelines isn't always riveting. No, okay. that's true. You, you said that again. Hey, <laughs> but now it gets riveting because we're going to introduce murder. Well, we'll see. I May don't know. 24th, 1954. Now the ball's in your court, Miss Boring, Miss Bored Out to Tears. Why don't you spice it up with some grisly murder and get us on the edge of our seats. All right. Get so I'm prefacing this. Are you going to preface it? Yes. The oh, only thing on the Internet. Yeah. About this. It's on Murderpedia. It was on Murderpedia. Murderpedia. Which is very poorly written. Is Murderpedia real? Like anybody yes. can can anybody put something on Murderpedia? Uh, pretty much, I guess. But is it is there somebody who verifies Murderpedia? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And this is sponsored by our friends at Murderpedia. Murderpedia. So Phyllis Thompson is who we're talking about as our victim here. Right? Phyllis Thompson. Phyllis Thompson. She was 23. Okay. Unmarried. Oops, my phone just turned off. Oops. There we go. All right. She was 23. She her home was in Lyons, Colorado. Oh, but she had worked around as a stenographer and secretary. I love stenographers and secretaries. So she was returning home um, from from a vacation in California, and she arrived in Tucson, Arizona on May 24th, 1954. Oh, May 24th, 1954, the same day that IBM announces a vacuum tube, an electronic brain that can perform 10 million operations an hour. Wow. Yes. Yeah, they introduced that. That same day? 54. Wow. Um, yes. <clears throat> she had in her possession a note to the manager of the club Esquire. Okay. From the manager's brother who lived in Denver, Colorado. Is a club like a dance club? I think. Okay. So she goes to the club and uh-huh. gives the note to the manager's wife at approximately 8 o'clock p.m. on May 24th. Okay, gives the manager's wife a note. The manager's wife was on duty at the time of her arrival, so she saw her. Okay. So then Phyllis was introduced to Richard Lewis Jordan by Mrs. Couture, who was the wife of the manager of the Club Esquire. Oh, Mrs. Couture. So she introduces um, Phyllis to this Richard Lewis Jordan. Okay, this fella. is this is Richard Lewis Jordan. He is a fella. So um, Phyllis and Richard. They remained there at the club until approximately nine or nine thirty, and uh, she she drank a few uh, sodas. Okay, not alcoholic. Right, and he was having beers, and okay. he had been drinking all day, oh. so he was pretty sloshed One by of this those point. fellas. Here's a local barfly. So then they, yeah, so then they left and went to the tropical the tropical inn, which Wait, was she a, left with the fella. Yeah, the drunk guy. Yeah, she went to the tropical inn, which is another tavern in the east section of Tucson. Huh. where they remained until approximately 11 p.m. 
Then they came back to the club Esquire and remained there until about 1145 when, wow. when they left together. This seems like a late night for the 50s. That was the last time Phyllis was seen alive. Oh, I can't figure out what happened to her. We set her up with a drunk man who's been drinking all day. Right. And then they continue to drink all night. I can't imagine what would have happened. And then this other thing happened. So. So we'll get back into Phyllis's story. Okay, but meanwhile, we'll set Phyllis aside for now. On May 25th, 1954. Oh, May 25th, 1954, a Tuesday night where on CBS at 9.30 p.m. was a show called Suspense, followed by a show at 10 p.m. called Danger. Yes. Richard, he continued drinking. Okay. And this is the next day. So the next day. I'm, I'm, we're going to we're going to come back to yeah. Phyllis. OK, but um, I'm telling you, this is something they find out later. So he continues drinking the next day. Richard does. Yes. And he meets James Clark in one of the bars. So then Richard and Clark ended up on Silver Bell Road, which was west of Tucson. OK. Jordan told Clark to look at the tires of the car. And then so Clark gets out to do it. And then Jordan gets out of the car, pulls a gun and then shoots Clark. Whoa. And he struck him in the eye and blinded him. Oh, then allegedly. he. He left Clark wounded and left in the car. Oh my gosh. Later, he was arrested for the shooting of Clark. And then it was then that it was determined that he was the person that had probably killed Phyllis May Thompson. Did so, they already know that Phyllis was dead? Well, so now we're going to go back to May 25th. Back to May 25th. At about 4.30 p.m. So he's, he's out drunk and everything. 4.30 p.m. Her lifeless body was found approximately six or seven miles northeast of Tucson. Oh. Her body was approximately 60 feet in the desert from the Indus in the Indian ruins road near Tucson. She was completely disrobed except for the right shoe. Well, were, at least he kept her right shoe on. There were 16 stab wounds in the chest area, Ugh. four of which had penetrated the heart and had caused death. Mm. Her face was mutilated by 12 slashes, Ugh. evidently made by a knife. Her clothing was found approximately 860 feet north and on the opposite side of the road from where she was found. Wow. And there was evidence to the effect that her bra strap had been cut. It was discovered by the sheriff's officers that there were tire tracks on and off the roadway opposite the point where her clothing was found and opposite the point where her body was found because huh. they were across the street from each other. Okay. So they made plaster casts of yeah. the footprints, which led from the car tracks to the place where her body was found. Yeah. And those footprints had the same measurements as Jordan's right shoe and the, and then, and her left foot. <clears throat> okay. So there was a hole in the sole of Jordan's right shoe, which yeah. also appeared in the plaster cast of the footprints. Okay. So that was, that's pretty yeah. obvious. Yeah, pretty damning. Yeah. So the footprint, which measured the same as Jordan's shoe, was obtained 15 feet from the location of Phyllis's body. And there was evidence of a struggle near Phyllis's body and that the terrain was torn up. Huh. So then they, um, on May 26th. Oh, May 26th, 1954, that same year, uh, when the same day on that Wednesday that a fire on board the U.S. Navy aircraft carrier USS Bennington off Narangaset Bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Massachusetts kills 103 sailors and injures many others. That's Ooh, day? Yeah, that's a tragedy. That was when Richard Jordan was arrested. Oh, and at the time of his arrest, a knife was obtained from the glove compartment of his car and there was blood on his knife, which on examination proved to be the same type and RH factor as Phyllis's. Remember, there's no DNA at this time. So no DNA. So you have to use blood type and 
RH factor, R-H whatever that factor. is. I was going to say, am I the dummy? Who no, this? but you know, okay. There was blood on his clothing and gloves, which were found in his clothes hamper at his home. I think he did it. The blood on his clothing and gloves was the, also the same type and RH factor as Phyllis. There was also some blood on the right hand side of the front seat of his car that was the same type as Phyllis. Okay. But Richard had no prior felony convictions. Huh. Attempted murder charge in Mississippi was dropped. Um, hold on. Well, now they're probably rethinking that we should have dropped that. Well, Jordan had worked in mental institutions in his past and had also been an inmate. So that was. Wait a minute. He worked in them and was an inmate? Yeah, that's what it said. Psychiatrists determined that he was not a psychotic case and and he knew right from wrong. So that they let him out. Oh, okay. Um, And this is some of. Okay, so. Maybe had these crazy tendencies and maybe that's why he wanted to work there. Like, maybe I can figure myself out. Well, and he was married. They found out. Really? He has a daughter. What? He served in the army. He was a patient in several veterans hospitals throughout the United States. And so when they they arrested him, he orally admitted to having killed Phyllis, but refused to put his admission in writing. But he did sign a written statement, which, among other things, alleged that he might or might not have killed her, that he had been on the road with her, but that he blacked out and didn't remember what happened. So Phyllis's fountain pen was found in his car. Her overnight bag and purse were found near his home where they had apparently been tossed from a car. Richard admitted in the written statement to having disposed of them on his way from the Indian Ruins Road. Huh. Um, hold on this well, second. I, w- I wonder part. like it's you just wonder like do people snap? Did he snap or did he was he planning this the whole time? But he was if he was drunk, does he even know what he's doing? Or or did some weirdness take over your body and you become a murderer? Yeah, that's a good question. No, I don't get an autopsy was performed okay. by Dr. George Hartman. Right. upon her body and according to his report which was admitted sorry this is in evidence death was due to four stab wounds that were in the upper half of the left breast of yeah, the victim we'll figure that out. so um let's see dr hartman gave his opinion that the time of death was between 6 a.m and 12 o'clock noon of the 24th at, okay. at the trial the doctor testified that death could have taken place at a time considerably prior to that set forth in his report This statement by the doctor was made in order to refute the alibi of the defendant, wherein witnesses testified that he was home at the time the death took place and that he had returned home at three o'clock in the morning. So the defense was trying to use that early time to say, well, he was at home. Mm -hmm. And so then the doctor in trial said, no, it could have been before that. Okay. So um, medical evidence stated that as a result of the wounds in the breast, death was instantaneous. So that was a good thing, I guess. Um, Throughout the trial, the testimony of investigating officers was varied, contradictory, and conflicting concerning descriptions of the scene of the crime and the manner in which they investigated it. The defendant was arrested at his home approximately 6.30 in the morning on the 26th and was not taken before the magistrate before the 27th, which was all in violation of some Arizona code. However, during the intervening time, while the defendant was incarcerated and prior to his appearance before the magistrate, he had been thoroughly interrogated by the sheriff's office and requested to sign a statement, which he did, and which statement contained an admission by the defendant that he might have killed Miss Thompson and he might not, and he might not have done so. Okay. So then the counsel for the defendant objected to that, introducing that statement but was overruled by the trial court all right um Mm -hmm. richard jordan took 
the stand in his own behalf and testified that he remembered being with the girl later identified as the deceased until sometime that night at the tropical inn but that he had no memory from that point on he filed a motion for a new trial which was denied and this appeal was taken he yeah i mean it doesn't yeah he if was, you don't yeah if you don't remember it doesn't mean you didn't do it, it doesn't right mean exactly so yeah he was convicted yeah. and put away and guilty as charged Yep, and that was the end of that. That's it for that, huh? That's all she wrote on that. So he was put away the same night that Dragnet aired and the night that Joe Friday interrogates a local gardener who's been arrested for holding up a grocery store? Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, Anything else? That's all I have for the whole month. Uh, Yeah. Oh, that covers May 1954. This was a quick one. It's a quickie. This was a quick game. Let's do that for 10 minutes. No. I think most people have turned it off already. This was a dumb one. All right. What a dumb episode. No, but it really does. I mean, these murders do like this sounds like I mean, it's a murder in the desert. Some guy in the 50s. Like there's so many of these, like so many people have been murdered. Yeah. But we are thinking of when we're done with the 50s of switching up the format a little bit because it's getting a little bit mundane. Amy's got an idea of some things like we might just do American timelines on location, just locations across the time won't matter exactly. Or maybe it will, but it won't matter. It, it'll be different murders that you want to cover. Yeah. And then we'll look into some other things about the town. Maybe maybe we'll talk about the local sports teams. Oh my God. Shoot me now. <laughs> local beers or breweries or local, uh, local attractions, uh, trivia. local butterfly houses. Yeah. Local trivia. Maybe we'll try to find, we'll just pick up the phone and start calling people. Until Ooh, so ghost, local ghost, local hauntings. Ooh, we can find a hauntings. murder, a place, and then we'll find a haunt. Maybe we'll just do, we'll ha- do hauntings. Just hauntings. We can just do hauntings. Let's just contact people and say, hey, you got any hauntings? Well, they've, but there's a book for every state in the, union about ha- famous hauntings there is yeah you okay. can find haunted haunted house stories from yeah. everywhere well maybe so we'll get into some that. haunted houses and this doesn't say we have to just focus on all the rapes and murders yeah yeah we're gonna switch it up coming by episode 751 thank you for listening listeners uh yes thanks for sticking yeah. it out thanks for being excited that amy's back we'll be she'll be back for september for sure is that the one or is it July? I can't remember. Oh, maybe it's July. One of, I can't one of the two. Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's September is the one you're gonna do. Oh, okay. I think. I don't know. We'll see. And me will be back soon. Anyway, thank you for listening. Time to get out of here. Chuck Berry, sorry this this episode's a little shorter. Uh everybody will survive. You guys are get over. Time it. to get out of here, Sometimes Chuck Berry. You need less of us. I like you, Aim. You love me? No.
Truman Ego Trip is the greatest band of all time by their music.